you have to be focused and in the moment with the bees. Because yeah. if you're not and you make a mistake, they will sting you. <laughs> they won't just sting you because they're mad. They will sting you if you make a mistake. So if I'm not fully present, I get punished for that. So I learned to be fully present and that allowed me to release all the other feelings. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to put down your troubles, spend some time yeah. with the bees and then pick the troubles back up. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am so happy to welcome Ken Schwindy to the My Fourth Act podcast. I think of Kent as a Renaissance man. Kent is an engineer and served as a captain in the U.S. Air Force, where he was deployed as an airbase combat engineer. He was a partner and, and vice president in a large engineering firm before joining the Corporation for Independent Living, or CIL, where he has served as CEO for over seven years. The Corporation for Independent Living is a nonprofit in Hartford, Connecticut, that creates and sustains affordable, accessible, and independent housing. In addition, Kent is an avid beekeeper. He just started teaching a course on beekeeping at Cornell University, and he is finishing the draft of his first historical novel. I think of Kent as my why not guest, meaning if I have the impetus, why not do it now? So uh, welcome, Kent. Well, thank you so much for having me, Aki. <laughs> it's great to have you. The focus of our conversation will be on what's happening in your life right now and new developments and transitions, because that's the focus of the fourth act. But we always start by going, going back a little bit in time. So when you were a young boy or young man, did you, did you know who you wanted to be when you grew up? Was there something clear in your mind? Well, the, as with most people, there's something very, very clear, but probably very, very wrong as well. I, I thought I wanted to be in the military um, from very early days. And I, and I really think that came from watching old episodes of, of MASH. I loved Hawkeye. He was an expert in his field but he did just enough to not get kicked out of the military. And that just looked like a lot of fun to me. So I always wanted to do that. And very early on, I decided I wanted to be an engineer. That, that may be a story in itself. Well, I have to laugh at your military story because you say military, but immediately you wanted to be a renegade in the military. <laughs> you wanted to be the troublemaker who got away with mischief. Yeah, I would say I, I'm not a nonconformist, but I'm kind of a contrarian. Um, uh -huh. If I see everybody lining up in one place, I think there must be something being missed somewhere else. So I've always liked that approach of kind of being on the edge of acceptability. <laughs> and um, that's what I tried to do in the military. <laughs> well, I hope we get back later on in this conversation to the edge of acceptability, because that's actually a really beautiful place to be and can be a place of opportunity. But the thing that struck me is that you I think you're the first guest I've had who said, I wanted to be in the military. 
and you ended up in the Air Force. You want to be an engineer and you became an engineer. So you follow it up on your childhood aspirations, which is interesting. You spent about four and a half years as a captain in the Air Force in an engineering function. As somebody who has not had that experience, what, what did you learn about yourself and what did you learn about leadership? What did you learn about people? Wow, so, so much. I think one of the primary lessons I learned early on was we were always told adapt, improvise, and overcome. That no matter how well you plan for things, that we were always taught plan, plan, plan. There always was something that changed. The famous quote, of course, is that no plan survives engagement with the enemy. Yeah. And so in the military, we were we were taught to prepare for things and to think and to be ready, but also to be able to adapt and move on the ground and don't get stuck in one thing, one type of thinking. And to me, that's been a great life lesson outside of the military. If you are so sure that you're right about something, that you're not willing to accept seeing things that don't support that reality and that belief, mm -hmm. then you're going to continue down that path long after you should have. Yeah. So the ability to change and to accept that change is part of life was something that I really, I really took from the military. I think the difference between an okay leader and a great leader is that the great leader notices faster that something isn't working and she or he knows how to adapt and change, right? So if you had to reflect on yourself for a moment, how how well do you think you do as a human when it comes to adapting, changing, going with the flow? I'm using a whole bunch of different language. Well, I think eventually I get there. I often look back and say, I should have seen that sooner. I should have changed sooner. Yeah. But I, I try not to beat myself up too much because it's really unfair, I think, for anyone to look at themselves or anyone else and judge them on what you know today when you're looking at an action that they did in the past. The real question is, what did they know then? And how did they use that information? And then, you know, why didn't they have other information? But to say that they made a wrong decision at that time is usually not true. It's usually that they had the wrong information at the time. So because you said at the very beginning that you one of your childhood dreams was to be in the military. You could have stayed in the Air Force forever, but you didn't. Well, how did you decide to leave the Air Force? Yeah, that was a very, very difficult decision. When I entered the military, I was single, and it was, it was easy. Only had to worry about myself, traveling around, coming and going, didn't matter. When I got married, it, it got more difficult, but I could explain that to my wife. As a combat engineer, I, you know, to disappear, couldn't always say where I was going, couldn't always say when I'd be back, but she understood that and, and we were fine with it. But when our first child was born, things changed because when I, um, when I got back from Saudi Arabia and, you know, our, our first child, our oldest daughter was, was 10 months old at the time mm -hmm. and she didn't recognize me because wow. I'd been gone so long. And I realized that between that and other deployments, I had been gone for half of her life. Mm -hmm. And then I walked in and my commander said, oh, welcome back. You're going to go to Bosnia for a year. Wow. And I said, no, I'm not. I was at a point at that right then in my career when I 
only had a six month commitment left. So I took the option to file separation paperwork and left the military instead. I'm really glad that there are people because we need them who can balance family and military commitments. Yeah. But for me, it was just too, too big a sacrifice. And you're describing in this in your case, an air force dilemma, but in my experience in the corporate world, it's the classic dilemma for very senior executives where, uh, at some point they go, is it worth me being away so much from my children and my spouse uh, where I start to feel like a stranger when I come back on a Friday? So I applaud you for um, being nimble. If nimble is a quality, you know, that we talked about and you're adapted beautifully and listen to yourself. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the, the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. It's hard to put, I think, the work you did in, in engineering with your partnership and, and with CIL together because they're very different entities, but they both, you both are where your engineering head in them. One is a for-profit, one's a non-for-profit. And I want to ask you an impossible question, but let's try. What are some moments that stand out in a really great way where you go, this is why I'm doing this. You know, the, this is why I do this work. This is why I got up in the morning but we also have those moments where you where we question why we're doing what we're doing because it seems really hard. So can you give us one of each and just just take us to a moment or an event where you go, wow? Yeah, and I, I'm gonna yes, I will do that. I, let me give you one of each from fairly early in my career because I think as you go through your career, you, you get to a point where you have more power over which things you're doing, mm -hmm. and so. You know, you're not always in that situation of saying, oh, someone made me do this or I can't believe they let me do this. It's it's more self-empowering. But early in your career, you, you you don't have that. You do what you're told. Yeah. And early on, I worked on a, on a very large project that was converting old railroad right-of-ways into multi-use trails connecting Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. So these were all abandoned, overgrown railroad lines. Mm -hmm. And I had to hike them in order to find out where they were, what needed to be done to fix them, or find out where wetlands had, had come into existence that need to be permitted, all these different things. And so I spent weeks being dropped off at various locations and hiking all day and being picked up somewhere else. And that's what I used to do for fun. So I remember <laughs> on several days putting my backpack on in the morning and heading out thinking, I get paid to do this. This is fantastic. But as you were on these hikes, though, was there things you had to record, things you had to keep track of? Or were you just, had you have to look at the conditions of the railroad tracks? Yeah, it, it was work. 
you know, there were things to do. I had to, I had to document things. I had to map things as I went along because we're, we didn't have good mapping. Um, I had to think through and in some cases come up with sketches for how to fix things. So I'd remember how to draw it when I got back to the office. Um, so it wasn't all fun and games, but just the fact that I was getting paid to hike yeah. in the woods was an amazing thing to me. And then on the, the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, I, I'm, member of the Congress for New Urbanism. I'm I'm an anti-sprawl person. I'm a sustainability specialist. So I believe in sustainable development and most of the development in America is unsustainable, unlike a lot of the things that you see like like in Germany, for example. So early on in my career I got assigned to several projects, including some, you know, big box retail, which are things that you know I don't I don't really support doing, especially on a greenfield site, you know, taking what used to be a farm and converting it into a big box retail store mm. is not my idea of sustainable development. Um, you know, if we need the big box retail, there are other places to put it that can minimize the impact. And so I remember being assigned those and and complaining to my bosses and my bosses just looking at me and saying, do you want the job or not? <laughs> and um you know, so I decided two things in that moment. One was that I was going to, um, I was going to climb through yeah. the corporate ladder so that I wouldn't have to do those things, and I was never going to force someone to do something that they didn't feel was the right thing to be designing. And um, and hopefully, I've been able to to do that then through my career. But those were, you know, both the good and the bad of of looking back. Since you are passionate about sustainable development and and somebody may have listened to you and go, I have a vague idea of what he's talking about. And I get the idea of not converting farmland into shopping malls, but we do have to build places for more stores. We need more stores. So what would be the solution in your mind, given the scenario you just painted for us? Yeah, to me, there are really two major aspects. One is to recognize that we need a finite amount of development, even mm. though it is a growing amount. So we shouldn't just let it spread to anywhere. We should define finite limits within which it will occur. And then the second thing is that we should look at it in terms of how we can meet our needs without impacting the ability of future generations to meet their needs. And if you can do those two things, and if you can look at life kind of in that way, you see different potentials. You see mm -hmm. the reuse of an existing facility or yeah. the reconstruction of an area or change the design and don't follow the prototype that the, the national chain stores created, but offer them an alternative that gives them exactly what they need, but fits into an existing structure that already is yeah. there. That's the way I look at it. And this is not a perfect analogy, but when you were talking about railroad tracks and, and I'm a former Manhattanite, I think of the High Line in Manhattan, you know, these old railroad tracks yeah. that were repurposed into yeah. a beautiful a, park now. An elevated park that has become uh, a beautiful, both as tourist attraction, but also a source of wellness for people. You know, so the ability of repurposing something that seemed worthless when I lived in New York has become something that adds value to a city, right? Yeah, and a good friend of mine actually worked on the design of that. And um, 
he took me for a, a walking tour afterwards and explained some of the decisions they yeah. had to make and how they had to look at things. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it came out beautiful, but when you think about the amount of thought that went into making it seem natural, mm. it, it really was quite an amazing project. Yeah. I'm going to do a little leap right now because we could easily have an engineering conversation because you're an engineer and that's really, really cool. And the, the world needs engineers like you who believe in sustainable development. But then there are these facets of you that might surprise somebody who thinks, well, he's the engineer guy. And one of the things I've known you for a little bit now is when I heard that you are an avid and passionate beekeeper. Talk about how your interest in beekeeping started and follow up then is, you know, most people go, God, bees sting. You know, I want to be away from bees. And this guy is what, taking care of bees? So walk us into that world, if you would. Well, a little bit of it starts with me being a contrarian. When I was a, a child, I was deathly afraid of being stung by bees. Mm -hmm. And... So my very contrary nature was that I have to learn then about these creatures. <laughs> so when I was when I was young, I was fascinated by bees and I really wanted to be a beekeeper, but that was back before the internet and I couldn't figure out how to become a beekeeper. But I, I'm, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. I, I, I get the story, but there are lots of other young boys and girls who are afraid of bees and they don't go, I want to be a beekeeper. To me, that's not a natural leap. So help me understand how that happened. This is pre-internet, pre-easy pre research. It just, just help me understand that a little more. Well, I guess it's just part of my personality. If, if I, anytime something externally kind of pushes against me and makes me, yeah. pr makes me feel like I can't do something or I shouldn't do something, yeah. then I just want all the more to be able to, to do that, to show mm -hmm. that I'm the one that gets to choose my fate. So I didn't like the fact that this, these little insects could make me decide that I was going to stay inside when I wanted to go outdoors. Okay. So I kind of pushed back, but then I started watching them and, and seeing them first because, you know, know your enemy and know yourself, right? I was, I was scared of them, so I was watching them. But then I realized that they, they have really interesting lives. <laughs> so that was when I started getting books about them and reading, and that was when I, I thought beekeeping would be fun. But I couldn't figure out how to actually do it. So I just put it down for many years. Mm -hmm. And then my older daughter was home from college one time. And she said, oh, I was, I was taking a class in sustainability. And we were talking about pollinators and mm -hmm. the plight of the pollinators and how you know wild bees are, are suffering and in decline. And there's so many problems. And we were also talking about you know honeybees and how people are keeping honeybees. And that's helping to fill some of the gaps or maybe it's causing the problem. What do you think about that? And I said, oh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I always wanted to be a beekeeper and I just never was. And she said, well, why don't you start now? So I said, yeah, I guess why don't I start now? <laughs> so I jumped back into the research and I joined the Connecticut Beekeepers Association and I learned to be a beekeeper and I got my first bees and I've never looked back since. As a child, I have a very vivid memory of it. I was 12 years old. We were living in Ankara, Turkey, an exotic place. And we went, we drove for an hour in, in a some very arid, dry part of the, ste the steps, the, the area there. And 
visiting a bee farm. So I have a memory of that. But to me, that was in a faraway exotic place. I'm trying to visualize Hartford, Connecticut. Do you have a garden? Do you have like a home where you keep them? Where are they? Just make it specific for us. Yeah, so I have a, what's called an apiary, which is a yeah. bee yard. Um, and it's in my backyard. And it's a, an area that I enclosed with an electric fence to keep the bears from attacking my bees. And I actually have two locations. One is almost at the extreme end of the property because when I first got them, I was thinking, oh, I have to keep them away from people. And then once I started beekeeping and learned how gentle and, and wonderful they can be and how disinterested they are in people, I thought, well, why am I walking that far to get to them? And I kept moving them closer and closer to the house. And um, so now they're they're about as close as I can get them to the house without them being in the way. And I keep uh, asking my wife if I can bring some indoors for the winter. And she says no, um, which is probably the right idea. But Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm glad you're listening in the spirit of having a good marriage. So <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask some stupid questions because I really don't know them. So where my mind is going, first, I want to know how many bees you have, how rapidly do they procreate, and do you have to go feed your bees? Well, those are complicated questions, but I'll give you the, the fairly simple answers. So right now I have about a half a million bees. You said half and, a million, um, right? Yes. Yep. Which is really, it's only about 10 colonies of bees. Um, but so but, but let me just say that that's, that's probably equivalent to the larger Hartford area residents, right? Uh, in, uh, in, bee, yeah. in, bee form, in bee form living in your garden. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Okay. So as far as, you know, like how quickly they, they procreate, they really only in the spring will swarm and only in certain conditions. So mm -hmm. I can largely control that. Um, I only have about half as many as I did last year because it was a very difficult winter this year for, for honeybees in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And there were massive losses across the state, which mm -hmm. is part of the ongoing problem that we're dealing with. But it's, you know, it is a, a constant effort to help them keep them alive. And sometimes, yes, I have to feed them. Last year we had a drought and there weren't any flowers for them to collect nectar from. So if I hadn't fed them, they would have starved to death. In a normal summer, they collect everything they need and I just have to keep an eye on them. Yeah. What interests me about everything that we all do as humans is why the heck we do it. So there are probably a lot of listeners are going, I, nothing in me wants to be a beekeeper. Help me understand, Kent, what inside of you, like what, what joy do you get out of it? What satisfaction? What motivates you to keep half a million bees? Could you explain that to our listeners? Well, I think in its simplest form, it's two things. that The thing that attracted me to them was kind of the science of it, that they are very, very different than we are. You know, the insect, the, they're social, they can't survive individually. They can only survive as a colony. All mm. of these things are very different than humans. They communicate through smell more than anything mm. else. So I was interested in that because I've always thought that understanding other perspectives and seeing things from a different point of view is a way for me to grow. So that was what attracted me to them. And then once I started beekeeping, I realized that they also provide an escape for me. It's one of the few times and places that I cannot think about 
the day-to-day worries or mm-hmm. about things that are going on in my job or other problems, you have to be focused and in the moment with the bees. Because yeah. if you're not and you make a mistake, they will sting you. <laughs> they won't just sting you because they're mad. They will sting you if you make a mistake. So if I'm not fully present, I get punished for that. So I learned to be fully present, and that allowed me to release all the other feelings. And it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to put down your troubles, spend some time yeah. with the bees, and then pick the troubles back up as you walk out. And invariably, they look a little different and a little less scary when I pick those problems back up. As I'm listening to you, it makes total sense to me. And I'm thinking that for you, being a contrarian has opened the door doors to some wonderful worlds, right? Which is a beautiful thing. So you've been doing this for a while. And since I've known you, and I want to be transparent, you and I met last fall in the middle of the COVID uh, scenario. There are two new passions that have emerged. One is an extension of the beekeeping is that you had the chance to apply to be a teacher and instruct people on beekeeping at Cornell University. You went for it and you got the gig. And at the same time, you sort of came out of the closet about saying, you know, I want to write historical novels. What, what did it take for you mentally to say, yeah, I think I can do these things now? Well, so, yeah, there were things that I always wanted to do. And in fact, there were things that I had always thought, this is what I'll do in retirement. It was actually one of our first conversations when you asked me about kind of where I was going and what I think I wanted to do in the future. And I told you, and you said two very simple words that completely changed my perspective. You said, why wait? Mm -hmm. And I started wondering, yeah, why wait? So I was very fortunate you had um, invited me to be part of your uh, first uh, fourth act mastermind group. And in talking to some of the other uh, people in that mastermind group, they all gave me another little piece. One told me to look for and accept the opportunities that the universe was giving me. Mm -hmm. One helped me to work through some of my head trash that was keeping me from actually moving forward and trying to do these things because I didn't think I was good enough or worthy of it. And one said, why are you so worried about setting deadlines and goals for yourself? Why don't you just approach this as how much of this can I do while still having fun? And if it takes you 10 years, who cares? Yeah. And those all came together into, okay, yeah, let's try this. And it turns out that I found that I, I did have more time available than I thought I did. I had more opportunities available than I thought I did. And I I was able to do things that prior to that, I thought I couldn't do. So it was really listening to other people and seeing those other perspectives yeah. and realizing that I was limiting myself. In my own life, having people where it is safe enough for them to call me out on my things. My limiting things are, it is so helpful. I'll I'll share this. It's a quick anecdote because this is a moment that changed my life. I was at this social function in Brooklyn back in the days 
and I was speaking to somebody who had a temporary staffing agency with an office in, in, in Brooklyn and an office in Tampa. And he was describing to me what he was doing. And out of my mouth came completely unfiltered. I could never do that. And he looked at me and he said, of course you could. And I went, holy shit, what did you just say? I mean, I really had this belief that I could never have a business. And a year later, when I had a chance to start a business, his, he calling me out allowed me to move forward with something I believed I couldn't do. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you had those voices feeding your brain uh, in, in a helpful manner. Because these are classic, classic, what I call expansive things you're doing that are adding to an already really good life that you have. Explain the notion of teaching, applying for teaching, beekeeping. What kind of credentials did you have? Like, how do they, how do they figure out that Ken Schwendy is qualified to be a, to teach beekeeping? I'm sure people are curious. You know, how, how did that come about? Yeah, luckily, um, one of the things that I, I had done in the past was I had gone through a master beekeeping uh, course or curriculum through Cornell. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually am a certified master beekeeper. So I've taken classes in beekeeping. I've had to pass practical exams as well as written and oral exams. I had to be able to do presentations. When this job opportunity came along, it just happened that some of my instructors from when I took those classes were involved in these new courses and helping to uh, find the new instructors. So that was how I both found out about the opportunity mm -hmm. and how I was able to demonstrate my qualifications. Nice. Now talk about historical novels. You know, what I love is we, we joked in, in the group that we were in about, you know, playing life in a whole bunch of different lanes at the same time, which is what you're clearly doing. You know, that's a whole other lane. I've already had a lot of authors, really well-known authors on the podcast, but the idea of writing a book or whatever it is, it's many people's, people have that dream, but many people never do it. So you're in the middle of doing it. Could you explain to us why historical novels and and how do you find time to write it? And what's that process like for you to sit down and write a historical novel? So, so to start with, there are several different genres that I really enjoy reading. And one of those is, is historical fiction. I've always been kind of a student of military uh, history. Mm -hmm. So to think about how people live during that time is kind of a, a natural offshoot of that. And that's why I was really attracted to that. And the particular period I picked was the, the Georgian period, the Napoleonic Wars, because it was just before a major disruptor in technology, the steam engine. Mm -hmm. So it was a point where for hundreds of years, they had been perfecting the same technology. And then when the steam engine came along, all of that stopped. So it maybe it could have progressed, but it had gotten as far as it was going to go. So to me, that's a very interesting point in time because no one living then knew that they were about to approach this disruption. Yeah. And, and I think that's, it's kind of a lesson for all of us is that we're caught in this moment that we're born in and we don't necessarily know what's coming. 
But when you're writing historical fiction, you, you know what's what is going to come for them. <laughs> so you're able to explore both how they were feeling and what they knew and didn't know versus the reality that they were going to face. And so to me, that's the exciting thing, why I chose that genre. My method of writing pretty much follows what I just described. I, I study history. I think about the actual events, and then I think about what an unknown person that history didn't bother recording would have been experiencing in those times and how would they perceive them at that time versus how we look back on them. Yeah. And then I try to think of a story that explores that. And I do that mostly when I'm out hiking or when I'm with my bees and my mind is flowing and I'm thinking about how this can come together. And then when I have the time and I feel the moment is right, I sit down and I write it. And, um, Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I don't. And the nice thing about writing is that the delete button is always right there. <laughs> the way in my mind I'm connecting the bees and the writing is, especially as you talk about it, there's a, there's a part of you that does like to step into danger. And, and, and by danger, I don't necessarily mean you're going to be bitten by the bees. And the unknown, you know, and that there is something that excites you about it. And as a fellow writer, I know no matter how well we outline a book, you know, we discover what the book is in the act of writing the book. We can only know so much in advance. And that discovery is really powerful. Last question, back to the teaching. So did you, did you have to come up with a curriculum or did you use what you were taught before? Or did they give you a curriculum as a, as a novice teacher of beekeeping yeah for for this class it was an established structure mm -hmm. um, that had already been prepared or it's actually they're just finishing it now i just will be instructing that class i'm hoping that now that my foot is in the door mm -hmm. that i can continue and i can be part of the process of actually developing future yeah. lessons we'll see where it takes me but so far i'm i'm enjoying it and i'm learning and as you very aptly pointed out i'm seeking new challenges i'm trying to grow yeah it you know it's not it's the danger of the unknown right that yeah. you know it, what's what's scary about the dark is is not the dark but what might be in the dark yeah. that you can't see and what i think is that i always need to be looking for something to be growing if i feel like i'm just stagnant and doing the same thing yeah that's when it's it's time for me to to move on to something else. So are there besides beekeeping and besides writing historical novels, are there any other secret yearnings or desires that are percolating that I'm not suggesting you have to act on them this year, but anything else where you go if if time permitted or circumstances did, it might be fun to explore this? It's funny you ask that. I just the other day I was talking to uh, my wife and my younger daughter and saying how, you know, these two things have been on my my bucket list, if you will, yeah. for so long. And now I'm actually moving forward on them and and doing, you know, one of them and working on the other one. And and I said, you know, I, I've got to find some new goals. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, they both looked at me and said, you know, you could just kind of like take a break and enjoy it for a while. Um, but they also know that that's not the way I do things. So right now I would say 
know, but only uh-huh. because I don't know yet what they are. I'm sure that there is something out there, and I I think, you know, the universe will present me with something. Yeah, and I, I'm going to be there to take it. As you are advised by your mastermind friends, right? The universe will tell you. Exactly. Be open to the opportunity. Was be open to the opportunity. As you think back on younger Kent, who wanted to be in the army and an engineer, and those things manifested, and you're a slightly older Kent now, and you've had experiences in both and other areas like beekeeping and writing. And if you were to share some wisdom with him, what would you say to him based on what you know now? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't talk to him. Um, <laughs> I, I actually, I, I would be afraid that I would change something and yeah. I'm so happy with where I am and what's going on in my life that I wouldn't want to risk losing it by changing mm-hmm. something. You know, it's called the butterfly effect. If you go back yeah. in time and you change something. So that's probably overthinking it because I'm an engineer. Um, but I, you know, I would be concerned about changing things. I think I just probably watch from afar and shake my head and sigh and wonder how (laughs) I got from there to here. (laughs) Nice. So let me extend this question to, if you think of our listeners who might also be thinking about, they all have their, their own version of a beekeeping or their own version of writing historical novel. And, um, as you said so aptly, I was going to, I had tabled that for until I retired. And then some, some people, people said, no, do it now. And you are, what kind of wisdom would you share with fellow fourth actors who have things that I may be speaking to them and might want to be actualized? I would say to start by being honest with yourself about what you want, what's really important to you. A lot of times we get trapped in thinking that we want certain things because yeah. it's what society has told us we should want. Yeah. So first you have to really know what you want, but then once you do know, then figure out how to go get it and look for those opportunities. Listen to the universe, find, find that towel, find the path that leads you, discover it. It's already there, but you have to know what you want before you can see it. I thank you for this wonderful journey we've been on in this conversation. If, if our listeners want to learn more about what you're doing, either at CIL or beekeeping or historical novels, where would people find out more about you, Kent? Yeah, so the, I mean, the best place for you know most of my life is centered on the thing we talked least about, which is the Corporation for Independent Living. Um, so the best place is there, which the website is cil.org. Um, there are links to to me and to what the company does and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if people are interested in beekeeping, there's you know any number of places that you can find. I would just say, look for something scientific and credible. Don't don't go to just the internet and punch in and start you know listening to anybody that you find there because most of them probably don't know what they're doing. But find credible sources and and seek that out. Hopefully someday uh, people will hear more about me because of the book. And um, and if not, that's okay too. Thank you so much for the conversation, Kent. Bye-bye for now. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful, Akeem. It's always fun to talk to you. Like what you heard? 
please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.